listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Usually, when we read scripture together in church, we read a small portion of a larger book. But tonight, we read almost the entire book of Philemon. The lectionary only cuts out the last few verses. Philemon is a letter, most likely written by Paul, and you might reasonably assume because of its title, written to a man named Philemon, but there you'd be wrong. The letter is addressed to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. This letter was written to a house church, a group of men and women who will gather together in Philemon's home to hear the letter read aloud and to discuss its contents. Much of the content is addressed directly to Philemon, but the letter is meant to be read by the entire church community. The letter focuses on the relationship between Paul, Philemon, and a man Philemon has enslaved named Onesimus. Slavery is abhorrent, it's wrong, but it also has, in many places and at many times throughout history, been normal. So normal that people couldn't imagine there was any other way to structure a society. And Paul does not do what I want him to do in this letter. I just want one sentence, just one, that says, as we all know, slavery is sinful, so stop enslaving your fellow human beings. I want him to have written that. It's one of the three sentences that I really wish Paul had written. You can ask me about the other two after the service. But Paul didn't write that sentence, and he doesn't write one suggesting that this newly formed Christian community should overthrow the entire political, social, and economic structure in which they live either. But I do think that he does clearly say that slavery should not exist in Christian communities. He just does it using a particular rhetorical style that may not be obvious on first reading. Spoiler alert. This may be one of the most sarcastic pieces of writing in the entire Bible, and I am here for it. In the opening address, Philemon is described as Paul's dear friend and co-worker. Paul and Philemon are friends, but they are also partners in God's work. They have a job to do to spread the good news and grow the church, and if they are going to be successful, they need to work closely together. The letter continues with a form common in Paul's letters. When I remember you in my prayers. Whenever you hear those words, look carefully at what Paul says he is praying for because it usually functions as the thesis statement for the entire letter. In this case, Paul prays that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. Paul is either suggesting that Philemon's work is not effective or that it is not as effective as it could be because he is not seeing things as clearly as Paul. Paul continues, For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. They are co-workers in this venture, but make no mistake about it, 
Paul has more power than Philemon. Paul has the power to simply command that Philemon do his duty, but Paul is saying he prefers to catch more flies with honey, that approach. And by honey, I do mean words dripping with sarcasm. So what is Philemon's duty? What is it that Paul wants him to do? Paul writes, I'm appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. A couple of things to note here. Onesimus was a pretty common name for an enslaved person, and it means useful. In saying that Onesimus is his child, Paul is both invoking and subverting the traditional paterfamilias structure that governed households. In this system, one man was head of the household with complete authority over all the people and possessions in the household, and a slave would be a possession, not a person. Paul is using this imagery to do two things. One, in this Christian family, Paul is the paterfamilias, not Philemon. He can simply command that Philemon do his duty. And two, Paul is saying that for Philemon's work on behalf of the gospel to be effective, he needs to change the way he thinks about and treats Onesimus. Paul describes Onesimus as his child, and then later he says that Philemon should treat him as a brother. Basically, Paul is saying that both Philemon and Onesimus are his children, and they are equals, which by extension means that Philemon needs to treat Onesimus as a person, as a relative, not property. Paul is writing from prison, and Onesimus is with him, but he is not imprisoned. So how did he come to be there? It's not clear. As I mentioned last week, people in prison in this time period had to rely on people outside of the prison to provide for their daily needs, and it's possible that Philemon has sent Onesimus to Paul to make sure he has food and the other basic necessities of life. Onesimus may also have run away But that is an offense that was punishable by crucifixion, so it seems odd that he would come out of hiding to help Paul. Although perhaps he did run away and realized there was no safe place for an escaped slave to live, so he is appealing to Paul to help smooth over the situation with Philemon so he can return to that household. It isn't clear how he came to be with Paul, but it's clear that this letter is intended to repair the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Paul wants Onesimus to return to Philemon's household, and he wants Philemon to accept him when he does. Playing with the meaning of Onesimus' name, Paul says that although Philemon thinks he is useless, he is in fact useful to them both. So useful, in fact, that even though Paul would prefer to have Onesimus stay with him, he is sending him back to Philemon. And listen to the words Paul uses. I am sending him, that is, my own heart back to you. I wanted to keep him with me. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. When Paul, who has already stated he has the power to just command you to do your duty, sends a request in a letter that will be read by your entire community recommending that you do something voluntarily instead of by force, how much wiggle room do you think you actually have? And not only does Paul want Philemon to accept Onesimus back into his household, listen to how he expects Onesimus to be treated. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord? 
Onesimus is not property. He is Paul's own heart. Paul expects Philemon to receive him as a beloved brother. The letter continues. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this in my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about you owing me even your own self, except I just did. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. As if Paul isn't laying it on thick enough with this choice of words, he employs another one of his favorite rhetorical devices. Although the bulk of the letter has been dictated to a scribe, this section was so important he wrote it in his own hand. Make no mistake, he is saying, I mean what I say. And that's where our reading ended. Now, if you've been wondering why the creators of the lectionary decided to leave out the last few verses, I have no idea but I can tell you what those verses contained. The very last few verses are just a list of other people who send greetings, kind of like a PS, and I would probably cut those too. But I would have extended this passage by one verse. That verse reads, One more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Paul is planning to come for a visit and therefore will know if Philemon has done what he is supposed to do. That seems to me like the Pauline version of a mic drop. I'm coming to check you out. Now this is my best effort at providing you with an accurate reading of Philemon, but I do want you to know that it has often been interpreted very differently. Some commentators don't see sarcasm in Paul's words. They see someone writing very carefully so as not to hurt the feelings of a rich and powerful man. Now that changes the tone, but not the meaning of the letter. This letter has also been used in countries like the United States to justify the forcible return of enslaved people who have run away. That changes the tone and the meaning, and I think it's a willful misreading of the text. A couple of years ago, I went to Durham, North Carolina for a conference, and as I often do, I added a day to see the sights. There was really only one place I wanted to visit, Stagville Plantation. It had been turned into a historic site that included original buildings where enslaved people had once lived. I wanted to see those buildings for myself. It wasn't that I doubted that slavery existed, but I was also aware that at least in some way, it was for me a story. And I had a sense that somehow if I could stand in a place where this had actually happened, then the truth of that horrible system would sink more deeply into my consciousness. But first I had to get there. The Stagville Plantation was about 20 kilometers from my hotel, but it was outside the city limits, so I wanted to make sure that not only would I get a taxi to take me there, but they would also bring me back. The nice white girl at the hotel desk was confused by my request. A lifelong resident of Durham, she'd never even heard of Stagville. There was no glossy brochure in the rack behind her desk either. But she Googled it and called a cab company that assured me a round trip. The taxi driver was African-American. He had heard of Stagville, but had never been there and could not understand why I would want to go. Didn't I want to just go to like a shopping center or some more typical tourist spot? Nope. 
take me to the plantation, please. <laughs> after we'd driven for about 30 minutes, I began to wonder if something was wrong. And after we'd driven for about 45 minutes, I knew something was wrong because my driver was clearly panicking and eventually pulled over to the side of the road praying, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, under his breath. He had gotten lost, and he was scared. And I knew right away that his fear didn't simply come from having taken a few wrong turns. It came from having taken a few wrong turns on a deserted country road with a white lady for a passenger. We were strangers, but the evil legacy of slavery and racism were already impacting our relationship. And his fear was reasonable and rooted in experience. Eventually, we were able to sort out the situation. I assured him I had nowhere important to be, and this was just an adventure, and he figured out the directions. We were so far off course, we needed to drive another 45 minutes. But now, he had relaxed a bit, and he began to show me around. The little country church where his grandfather had been a preacher. The huge, menacing prison complex where he quipped, clearly more relaxed now. Are you sure you don't just want to visit that plantation instead? And finally, Stagville. As he took me up the long, winding driveway, he muttered, this place feels bad. This is a bad, bad place. He refused my offer of a ticket, opting to wait in the car. I bought my ticket and joined a tour that was already in progress. I'd only been there about 10 minutes when the tour guide started to give us driving directions. It turned out that the slave quarters were a couple miles up the road, which suggests the size of the original plantation and also presented me with a problem. So I put up my hand and said, hi, I'm from Canada, sorry, sorry, and I took a taxi here and I didn't know we had to drive to another location and would somebody please give me a ride? And you know what happened, right? Because of course it did. This nice older couple said, we're from Canada too. And not only would we be happy to give you a ride, but if you're willing to visit a few additional tourist sites with us today, we'll drive you back to town too. I thanked them, ran over to pay and thank the taxi driver and release him from the misery of waiting for me at the plantation. And then, while offering a silent apology to my parents, took a ride from strangers. There are a lot of things that I could tell you about seeing buildings that enslaved people once lived in, but here are just two. The first is that the only reason these particular buildings were still standing was because they were built in an era where people who enslaved other people began to realize that if they provided slightly better accommodations, their slaves would not get sick so easily and could work harder and produce more. It's just good business sense. And the second is that I was allowed to touch the fingerprints embedded in the bricks that enslaved people had made to form the chimney of that house, and some of them were undoubtedly the fingerprints of small children. Paul was challenging Philemon to think differently about human relationships and reject the dehumanizing institution of slavery. I think he's challenging us to do the same. May we listen. May we act. In the name of the triune God who creates, redeems, and sustains. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to 
provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.